Hello and welcome to Autoholics Anonymous by The Autoholic. I'm Stephen Diamond. In this episode, Ryan and I are joined by our friend Mike in conversation about his BMW M5s. We also talk about a few bring a trailer auctions, hypercars, and Porsches, but mostly M5s. So stay tuned and enjoy. Well, Skype tells me that I should avoid legal snags by telling people that they're being recorded. So the recording is now started. How many of the podcasts have I opened like that? I think you, I think that's good. I think we should keep doing that, <laughs> especially if we have guests uh, who are talking with us. Right. Well, so welcome to the Autoholic podcast number Don't X. Don't <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, figure that out when it comes out. Um, today we have... Uh, Myself, Ryan Abronovic, Stephen Diamond, and Mike Venditti are our good friend with us. And we're going to have an, a little bit of an interesting conversation about uh, Mike and his history with cars. And uh, we'll see where else the journey takes us. Yeah, so for a little context, uh, Mike and I met during training, uh, starting our jobs after college. Um, we won't say what company. But, uh, you know, we met and instantly, you know, became friends uh, once we knew we were both car geeks um, and immediately hit it off. Um, we actually, so the three of us were all part of a 24-hour of Lemons team. Mike, unfortunately, dropped after our first race. Uh, when Mike, we oh, yeah, Mike never got to drive. <laughs> right. <laughs> Mike, our car is so good now. You have to try it once. I uh, forgot you were on the team, Mike. I, I, not, now I remember you were with me in the Jetta when we got popped on the way up to uh, Thompson. I'll never forget that. But, uh, but you know, Mike was a, a big factor. He was actually, you know, him and I kind of had the idea to start a Lemons team and uh, gathered a lot of our, gathered our friends to put together a team. And, and that happened. Um, and so Mike and I have stayed in touch as we, continue to work uh, for the company and, uh, you know, go on drives every now and then and catch up uh, when we need a break from our jobs to talk about cars and <laughs> stuff like that. So, uh, Mike, without further ado, uh, tell us a little bit about you and, and your cars and things like that. Sure. So I am an autoholic, unashamedly. It's a medical condition that I am happily diagnosed with. Yes, welcome. Well, welcome to Autoholics Anonymous, where we uh, try and relieve our issues <laughs> with cars. I don't, I don't see what the issue and, is. And drink. <laughs> and, and, well, that's the thing. We'll get into the drink. The drinking helps us. <laughs> but don't I, drink uh, and drive. Absolutely. Yeah, never, people. Um, right. In separate occasions, the drinking is with the podcast. The driving is another another occasion. Right. right. Exactly. It's the opposite of Volkswagen. Volkswagen said sign, then drive. Drive. <laughs> And then go somewhere and stay there and then drink. <laughs> um, I so I currently have a 1991 BMW M5, which to all you BMW nerds out there is E34 M5. I have a 2001 E39 BMW M5 and a 2011 E93 series. That's a six-speed, so can't can't get too much hate for that. Um, they're all they're all great, but the the one that has my heart and always will is the E34. And it's funny because so I I've always liked mechanical things and have always liked to go fast. I grew up riding ATVs and and things like that. 
but uh, I wasn't really into cars until I was like approaching the age where I could get a permit because I was like, oh, this is attainable now. And I, I remember the very early days of YouTube, they would have pirated clips of Top Gear UK. And the first clip of Top Gear I ever saw was of Jeremy Clarkson doing a review of the E60, the V10 BMW M5. And that's what got me hooked. What was and his they, uh, What was his uh, shtick on that? The, the review I can think of of the E60 is Tiffany Dell, but I can't remember the Jeremy Clarkson one. It's a pile of crap until you hit the M button, and then it's the best car in the world. <laughs> I, now that you mentioned that, I remember the review. They they <laughs> focused that that whole, if you think back to that review, the whole review it focuses on all the faults and shortcomings of that car for like eighty percent of it, and then he there's like this big dramatic video sequence where he hits the M button and he mm. revs it out to eighty two and a quarter, and there's just induction sound and exhaust noise, and he talks about how it's like a four thirty with with four doors. Um, yeah, and, and that, that got me hooked. And, and, and um, the one he drove, was it an SMG or was it a manual? Yeah, it, SMG UK, only. Yeah. Europe only had SMG, only in the U.S. did we get manuals. And here's the thing. This was in 2004. So that, that video review had him starting the car with a key, which we never got here. We, we always had the uh, push oh, button wow. for that car. Right, yeah. Because it was 06, the first one that came to the U.S., right? Yep, that's that's exactly right. So um, that got me hooked on the M5. In my mind, that was always like the car I wanted. I I couldn't care less about any other car. But this was when I was first getting into them. And then, you know, time passed and I became more into cars. And I started liking Lambo, Porsche, Ferrari, mostly the the contemporary stuff because I was dumb and 18 and thought that was the only cool stuff. Now I much prefer the vintage, but we'll get to that later. Um, I, wait, just on that point, I think it's yeah. funny. I wonder if, Stephen, you had the same experience because you grew up with a little bit of a different deal than maybe the two, Mike and I. But I had the exact same deal where I was into new cars, and that, that was it. I remember when I went to Pebble Beach for the first time, I, I was younger, and I didn't even know – I didn't know much about old cars, but I knew everything about all new cars. I knew all the specifications and everything, and, and now it's – 180. I, I don't know anything about the new cars coming out. I don't know any of the specifications, and I'm lusting after cars from the 1940s, 1990s. You know? Yeah. No, that's yeah. ironic that you mention that because uh, I mean, growing up as a car enthusiast myself too, you know, you do research and you're reading articles about all the new cars. You know, going on car configures. Uh, it's all the latest and greatest, um, and that's super exciting. And, and I think for me, my tipping point was when I got my W123. Um, and then I think I just fell in love with classic cars and just became obsessed with them over anything that was modern. Well, then you had the benefit of having a classic car as your first car, right? Yes, yes, I did. I don't know that we could call my 1991 car a classic car when I was 17. I'm not sure that was old enough yet. Probably not at the time, no. Right. Now it is, but at that point it was not. Right. And Mike, when did you get your E34? October 13th, 2013. Okay, that's so that's when it arrived. Yeah, well, I was 19, I love how you have the uh, 20 years old. 
Can I ask you something? Did you prepare that for, for this podcast or you, you just know that date very readily? I, I just know that date. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's funny. I wasn't that excited about it. Like when, when the transaction happened, first of all, the, cause again, in my mind, I was always like E60, 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 but E60s and E39s were still much more expensive at the time. And this is before all of the late 80s to early 90s European cars like kind of spiked a little bit. That's very is, recent, by the way. That's like the last five years. Exactly. And right. I, and if this was 2015, I would not have been able to pull this off. So I got into this car right before that pop happened. So I, I guess no. it was meant to be. They were a total value back then. I remember looking at them online. They, you could get them for $10,000. I saw, <laughs> yeah. I, I made an agreement with a guy in Ohio to buy a black on black one with a dine-in exhaust and ECU for whatever the ECU is worth uh, with 72,000 miles for 8,800 bucks he wanted. And I said, done, I'll be out there to pick it up tomorrow. And he ended up selling it to his next door neighbor because he didn't want to wait um, <laughs> and face the risk of me not coming out there. And I was like, all right, dude. Um, and then sure enough, this, this E34 in Florida popped into my radar, um, like two months later. And this one was white. So complete contrast there. It's all, it's full circle. Um, and Just as a note, you ended up with the better color in my opinion. Oh yeah. I think I, so. Yeah, yeah. You got the right car i mean white so it's white with uh beige interior. no not beige dove it's gray dove. right dove gray that's right dove gray. okay i don't know the colors i'm not beige. A BMW it's unbelievable <laughs> it's i'm not tan. insulted I, I don't know. i'm insulted i don't i don't know ben so so i can't fault steven there. it's been a while since i've seen your e34 too at least two months at the minimum at this point no no it was longer than that did you have the E34 with you when we went on the drive? No, it was the E39. E39. I saw the right. pictures on Instagram. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was the E39. <laughs> You're right. Damn, so it's, I it's been at least maybe like half a year or so. Or yeah. not that long. But. Hayfield. Hayfield's, Hayfield's in uh, January. That's right. I haven't seen Mike's car in probably years, but uh, I do have a Dove Gray interior at BMW as well. So there right, could be right. a reason that I have that on my mind. So, again, disclaimer, I am not a BMW guy. <laughs> But as, as, like you all, as you all may know, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, Stephen is looking to become a BMW guy, potentially. This is a Maybe. conversion group I, for Stephen. That's what this is all about. <laughs> this is an intervention. Mike, right. he, said that, he said that he didn't like my car that much. He said, you know, it just didn't really do much for me. And I, I was <laughs> insulted because I feel like my car is everything that exemplifies BMW. Certainly, it's more subdued than a wonderful M5 or something like that. But, you know, I think that the similar characteristics pass down even to the lower spec cars. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they definitely do. Um, so, get, Mike, going into your like your E34 and, and, and um, you know, purchasing that car and how it maybe changed or, or shaped uh, your appreciation for classic cars or just cars in general, Um and, you know, I want you to go into that a little bit more, but also I want to bring up uh, your alter ego of motoring enthusiasts. Ah, uh, yes. Um, which you have used the E34 as a poster child for. Um, so tell us also about that 
in the ethos of, of you having that car and creating that account and kind of building that building that out yeah so motoring enthusiast is my instagram page where i post mostly m5 related content and mostly e34 m5 related content since that's my bread and butter mm -hmm. um and that's just a way for me to like get it out of my system <laughs> basically to to put the car stuff out out into the world and and have other people enjoy or tell me why they don't enjoy it if they don't um which that's only happened a couple of times but um yeah so that that's where i just post uh, car things and sometimes I, and i need to get back in the habit of it more um like when i when i go on drives in the e34 and just post pictures from that and whatnot um and then every once in a while a little bit of commentary and stuff i see that i think is stupid like spending 43 grand on an automatic uh, Toyota Forerunner. Uh, hey, uh, I, I I have to say, just I know this is this is way off topic, but can we talk about this for a second? I, that's outrageous. I cannot believe so, the amount of money that went for. Let's give some context before we go into it. So, Mike, if you right. want to set up what you sent us. Yeah. So, bring a trailer, which is kind of like Narnia, uh, for all us car people, and has all of these eclectic bizarre some of the stuff i don't even know what it is for sale <laughs> everything's always for sale there and some person paid forty three thousand dollars for a i think it was a 1996 if i'm not mistaken or something like that um toyota mid 90s forerunner yeah and it was mint toyota. don't get me wrong it was it was beautiful five thousand dollars though for uh or sorry five thousand miles for $43,000 and it's not even stick. I think this is just a very wealthy person that just maybe they had one back in the day and this was an, a nostalgia purchase. Otherwise, yeah, have to why? Be. Why? How can you justify? But the crazy thing is how many people were bidding with that individual up to the 43 grand? You know, I, oh, I did don't you look I, into it. I didn't actually, but I can't imagine that it went from 20 to 43. You know, nobody was right. going to jump the price up like that. So, how many people were in on the action on that thing up to 43 grand? Who who sees the value in that? I, that's what's phenomenal to me. I, I think I could buy the story that you just gave, but I mean, maybe that's one guy. How many how many guys out there are like rich and want to pay 43 grand for their high school forerunner? I don't know. But here's a better <laughs> question for me. What else do they have in their collection? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> if you're gonna drop 43 on uh, on a forerunner. What number car is that? It's like 12, 13, like, uh, I'm going to guess 103, <laughs> like something like that. Yeah. It's not car number three or four. Yeah. And, and how will they use it? You know, if they have that many choices of other cars, you know, when will they say, oh yeah, let's take the forerunner today? Yeah. yeah I don't know. I, I, don't I think that's it. getting tucked away or, or it's going to Radwood. One of the two. <laughs> right. It's good for one show. Right. 43 grand worth. You know, just on this subject, and then we'll get back to Mike, but who takes cars like that, like a Toyota 4Runner, and just stuffs it in a garage and says, hey, I'm going to buy this probably for like 30 grand and hang on to it and then sell it like 20 years later for a loss based on inflation? Like, <laughs> I, 
it's not a car to store. Like, dude, it's not unique. It's not special. It doesn't have any like uh, uh, collector value, really. You would think. I mean, maybe the price is differently, but in terms of like the, you know, it, it's not rare. But I, but I see lots of examples of cars like this, and I wonder what's the character of a, of a person that stuffs that away. I I don't really get it. Yeah, that's t- that's a good point. And and how much were those new? Like twenty grand or something? I think they're like twenty five to thirty. Yeah, yeah probably probably right. base for twenty, right? Yeah, you're probably right. right. Probably between twenty to thirty. So once you factor in inflation, you're looking at probably close to forty in today's money. Well, at I least think, I think if Toyota were to see this, they should use it as a poster child of how their cars retain their value. If, if any of us worked for Toyota, we would set up a great marketing campaign on that. Yeah. Toyota, a couple yeah. guys, you know, if you're yeah. interested. Three, three smart schmucks right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but getting back to Mike and BMWs. Huh. Yeah. So, so this, this was kind of like the awakening for me on the fact that old cars are cool because like, I didn't really know much about the history of the m5 and specifically of the motor that's in my car the s38 uh inline six i didn't i didn't know much about that i just knew that this was an m5 and that it was in my budget and it wasn't the e60 which at the time is what i thought i wanted and you know i i got to driving that car and and learning it in and out um over the course of the next year but um it wasn't until we got some background noise yeah ryan is that you oh i apologize the wind is whistling through um no no worries um and i uh, there's a storm of would seem the sky is is pink interesting yeah, I, I thought it was a bunch of street bikes whizzing by, to be honest. Right, that's what it sounded like. There were some before. I'm surprised you guys didn't comment on those. Just the wind was more interesting for you. It, it was louder than wind. Yeah, it was howling. Um, yeah, so back back to the M5. So that so that was kind of what was the great awakening. Um, because I didn't know it was hand-built and that if you took off the black bumper stri- strip in the front you you would see the guy who signed it dated in, in the case of my car 11 27 90 um I, I didn't know any of that stuff until i got the car and really learned to love it and then that just really solidified my relationship with with cars um of of all eras and then that coupled with a a place i worked at over the summer when i was in college some vintage european exotic car specialist they specialize in porsche ferrari and aston martin and um i that's when i spent a lot of time around a lot of crazy really rare stuff that most people don't even know exists and i felt really privileged just to have the opportunity to work there i was like oh this is really cool this is really interesting it's about the story. It's about the passion, the craft that went into making these cars and then the people that owned it. So the M5 set that off. But then this one gentleman that worked there, rest his soul, he's no longer with us. But he threw he he saw me eyeing his I think it was a 72 backdated 
um, Carrera RS tribute with a three six in it, uh-huh. making like two eighty to the wheels. So and it had like a nine six. It had a it had a later motor, like a nine sixty four motor. Nine six four. Yep, that's yeah. right. It had a nine six four motor in it, and he he threw me the keys and said, "Have at it. Just don't rep, try and rep match into first gear because the synchro is no good." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> don't think I would try that anyway." But absolutely, and and that and I took that out for like twenty minutes and was like, "I get it," because I didn't. I didn't even really like the 911 that much un- until I drove that car. And now mm. the car that I want most, as I'm sure Ryan and Steven are tired of hearing, is um, a G- uh, 911 GT3 uh, current current or just out of production generation. So yeah. that's that's kind so of how I got you to mean where a, I am You mean today. a 991 Gen? 991.2. Although I wouldn't complain if it was a 99. Nine one with a three eight. I, I still wouldn't complain. PDK that's, that's interesting. I would definitely go for the nine nine seven GT three over a uh, over a nine nine one. Absolutely, Stephen. Where do you lie on that? Uh, I mean, I, I've I've driven a nine nine one point one GT three, and that was uh, thrilling to drive, to say the least. Um, but I do understand uh, the 997 GT3s, I think, are the epitome of the modern GT3. I really think they are. They're screamers, and uh, I think they're the rawest out of them, even though you know they've kept the 991s pretty raw. Um, but just the 997s, uh, with the narrow bodies and, and, and all that, I think that really sticks to me. Have you guys ever seen Lee Keen um, post videos of his... 9971 GT3 RS. Yes. Frog. No, I have not. Or, or the, the license plate is uh, uh, like froscht or something in, in German, which means yeah, frog. Frosch. Yeah. Because it's green. Oh, it's awesome. And he can <laughs> wheel because he's a professional racing driver. And that's, yeah. that's what makes me want that generation GT3 RS as well. Um, I bet you, I bet you if I drove both, I'd probably like the 997 better. I think I think you would too. To it's honest. much more similar to your E34 experience, for example, in comparison to like a 991. Right. Less is more with those, I think. Right, and and I think you know, like Stephen said, that it, just talking about the evolution of, of later 911s, the 997 to the 991 was such a big jump. From that, you know, it, it really, I know it was such a big leap from the air-cooled cars, but it still was, like, close. And then the new one just felt, like, not even close at all. It was, like, way bigger, like a totally different car. Yeah. And they've, you know, taken another step further with the, the 992s, even more more towards, a, like, a sedan, luxury kind of car. Which is actually pretty cool, because I think I'd love it, like, as a daily, you know? Oh, it's probably a fantastic daily I, I've been hearing that a lot, that that's the ultimate wealthy person's daily driver. I mean, 911 it, It's like a GT. Now, now more so than ever. Do yeah, you, guys you see know, a lot of Turbo S's as, as dailies. Yes. Do you guys know Sam Hancock? Yep. Drive the world? He did it in a, uh, a 991. 
that drove the whole world essentially in a 991. Oh, and, are you talking uh, about Sam from Seen Through Glass? Yeah. Okay. I don't I don't remember his last name. Maybe I have it wrong. Sam Seen Through Glass, my apologies if I got right, your last right. name yes, wrong. Yes, yes, yes. He drove around the world in his 991, which is also right. in green. Which was oh, I was I was thinking of I I think yeah I think Sam Hancock I was thinking of the British uh, vintage racing driver. Yeah, I know I have my names wrong. Sorry okay. for everyone involved here. <laughs> That's interesting was, though. Yeah, the point was that he he drove that around the world and it made me think about wow, like if you tried to drive even a 996 around the world, I think you'd hate yourself. <laughs> like you know, it's just a, a a way different thing from the 991, you know. Right. And he had a touring, too. Uh, um, yeah, didn't, didn't he have a 911T? Wasn't it a 911T? 911T, 911T, okay. not a GT3 touring. touring. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't touring, right, right, a 911T. Which originally, I think, stood for touring back in the day. It would make sense, but you never know with those <laughs> sneaky Germans. <laughs> we have to look that up. Nomenclature has gone fully out the door with them. Yeah, rules don't matter anymore around that kind of stuff. Um. Okay, well, um, I think this is a good time to pivot into um, maybe like let's talk about what we're drinking first of all. Salute everyone. Uh, happy, this is a Saturday night, so happy Saturday quarantine. Uh, I'm Salute. drinking, I'm drinking a uh, Hendrix gin uh, with seltzer with a cucumber and lime in it. It's starting to feel like summer. I'm up here in Connecticut, uh, and it's finally getting a little bit warmer. Um, so starting with some gin and couldn't, didn't have tonic, so stuck with some seltzer. <laughs> I'm drinking a, uh, Oconomurat Rebholtz. Uh, it's a, uh, Thinking it's with a the Red Holtz. <laughs> yeah, Rebholtz, this guy, Hans Rebholtz is the man. Uh, I visited this guy in, in, uh, in Germany. I might've told you guys previously. You explained in a previous episode. Uh, okay, I good. I won't. Back. I won't go into any further detail then, but this this Rebholtz, it's dry, it's crisp, uh, it's a Riesling, um, it's from Faltz, Germany. I love it. It's uh, one of the one of the wines I'm drinking the most these days, and it definitely feels like summer here in Mexico. What's the temperature though? <laughs> right now, it's actually a cool evening. I would say it's probably about 80, 80 in the low 80s. And that's a cool evening. Yeah, yeah, that's so crazy. It was, it was 35 Celsius out today, so let me just... I think 35 is it's got to be like 93 or something. Like yeah, that. no, 95. It was 95 yeah. out uh, wow. today, all day. So, And it, it doesn't feel like the hot, hot summer yet, which is just blows my mind. You know, So I'm a, I'm a Northeasterner, moved down here, and you totally readjust your you know, internal thermometer. Because 95 seems, seems normal, you know? <laughs> That's uh, incredible. Mike, what are you drinking? I am going to butcher it, but I am drinking Glen Fiddy. Um, it, well, it's Scottish, so apparently you're not supposed to say the CH at the end of it like that. <laughs> so you're supposed I'm, to be already a bit drunk and, and slurring your words. So. I, I am supposed to be. Um, <laughs> it's a 12-year single malt scotch, and um, it's pretty good. Are you drinking it uh, up with a little water on the rocks? Uh, I had it on the rocks, and that's acting as the water bath for it. Okay. Lovely. Pretty good. 
we're, we're having the Autoholics own whiskey finals just to sort of throw a little competition Chris Harris's way, you know? Right. We can, <laughs> oh, we can I, drink I'll and talk about cards, too. At least we're actively drinking while we're talking about cards. Correct. Under the assumption that we had been drinking. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Um, so I think we wanted to talk about, we're talking about uh, Bring a Trailer and some of the cars that are going for crazy prices on there. Um, and Mike, I believe you also sent us earlier um, an Alperta. Yep. Um, that went for like a high $400,000. Um, and it was under Bring a Trailer's exceptional results uh, page. Um, and you made a comment uh, on its exceptional results. Um, and you said something along the lines of, uh, what the car used to cost maybe a few years ago. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? I think it's a great because that, that kind of stuff drove me nuts where you would see people trying to flip all of these limited production run supercars. Like, do you, do you remember when the McLaren F1 was 300 or 400 grand and they couldn't give it away? Um, how many years ago is that about? This is, I think this is like 15 to 20 years ago. Okay. But even, even if you adjust that for inflation, mm-hmm. it, it, it's still. You're not us. even close to, to, to today's price point. It's, it's right. bonkers in the McLaren F1 story. Yeah. Like those, those cars blow my mind and I could get like the, the thing about this is people can do what they want with their money. But it, it winds me up to, to see speculators getting on top of these cars and then trying to make markets in them and, and flip it for a quick profit. And a lot of these cars, they're trading hands and they have less, they have delivery mileage on them. It's such a rotten shame. It's like drive, drive the flipping thing. Otherwise, what's, what's the point of it being produced? Who, who gives a shit if Ferrari can make a great car? <laughs> If, if it's not going to get driven. So seeing, I, I know the ask for a lot of Apertas, which I don't remember how many they made. I think they made less than 500. I could be wrong, but. And, you know, meanwhile, hopefully I don't get myself in trouble with Ferrari, but uh, <laughs> their production numbers are notoriously tricky. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing, right? Ask someone how many Enzos they made and you get like plus or money 75 or 80 every single time. Um, and, and this, so this car, I think, so I'm not big on convertibles, but if I was to buy a mid engine Ferrari, I would buy the four, five, eight speciale Aperta because naturally aspirated four and a half liter V eight, 600 horsepower, the crispest double, if that's even a word, double clutch gearbox paired to one of the best free revving motors um i think it's awesome and and to see people trying to get like seven or eight for that car when i think ferrari didn't even like the msrp obviously there's dealer markups but the i don't even think the msrp was in that zip code when the msrp was was 403,000. Okay, so I, I mean that's a lot of dough, but like it's, it's quite not a bit of hundred. It's not eight hundred. 
right? Like people were trying to get for them even up to, I think, early last year. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, I, but, I do think it's a bit crazy how much people just think uh, that guaranteed a limited production car, uh, how much they think it's guaranteed to like double in price. And it, it does seem to be double that they expect yeah. for it. And you see right. it a lot even with um, with other, you know, high-performance cars like, you know, the AMGs even or um, even some Porsches, you know. Like I can think special. of the 911R was a great example of that. Exactly. It came out, it's the last manual GT car, and then uh, Andres Preniger gave everyone the middle finger and put a manual in the new GT3 after that. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> Bless that man. And then you even have like other cars, like the you know the GT4 Caymans and and things like that. Just other interesting cars that you know are, are expected to come along that kind of make the other car not obsolete but not as special as people initially thought it was. It's such a game because I don't I paid attention to this stuff in the you know late 2000s as I started reading car magazines and whatnot and. There didn't seem to be all this hype and focus on how rare and special and awesome the GT, the contemporary 997 GT3 and GT3 RS. No, not at all. Absolutely not. You, you can. There, there. Chris Harris has a bunch of stuff. He's talked about how you know he was in and out of a few of them. You know, for a steal as to you know what they go for now. Yeah, and it's what changed? Is this a function of the look at me social media, or is this just the great awakening of enthusiasts? I suspect it's more of the former than the latter, to be honest. I would side with you on the former as well, but I I wonder how um, I wonder how certain cars, you know, sort of became victim to that, right? So, for example, let's talk about Lamborghinis, right? This was mm-hmm. always a uh, you know, in, in recent times, like in, in our lifetime, it was it was very much a, uh, you know, who, who's bigger type car. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, less so the, the style of Lamborghini Lamborghinis from the 60s and, and, and you know, up until the up until the 2000s. But in the 2000s, you know, they were featured in a lot of rap videos. You know, they were like very became like a pop culture icon to be seen in maybe even more than it was respected as a driver's car. So. I sort of got that, like, you know, game playing with those. And, and I'm, I didn't follow it, but I wouldn't be surprised if that type of thing happened earlier on with those type of cars. I guess I wonder is how did that transfer to something like the 911, you know? I, I, but the 911, forget about just the rare models. I think it's had, a, it's had an evolution over the last, you know, honestly, maybe like seven, five to seven years You know, I remember driving in a 993 Turbo when I was like 14 and the guy bought it for like 40 grand. And, and, uh, you know, what does a 993 Turbo go for now between two and 300? Yeah. Yeah, And the S, forget it. Right. So it's like, it's not, you know, all nine, all 911s just had this, had this big elevation. And I, I remember when they first started going through it, I was reading a lot of different uh, things on it. And some people said, hey, look, they've always been uh, worthy of a higher value than they achieved, right? And so the market's just adjusting. And there are other people who said, hey, you know, this is a bubble. It's it's just, you know, pop culture, so on and so forth. But, you know, so far, I, I don't think we've seen any sign of softening. Yeah. 
I, I don't think so either. Um, yeah. Um, but I do want to mention, um, and, I, and, I, and I missed what you guys talked about, but um, going back to that Alberta, why would you have to go for something special like that, Mike? Why would you rather have that versus just a normal four or five eight? Why wouldn't that be enough? I wanted to ask the same question. Like, what, what's that, the differential between an Alberta and a regular four or five eight? I, I'm not sure that it's so tangible. But it, it probably yeah. isn't. Um, I mean, I'm sure for any of us, like we'd be more than happy with it, with whatever we could, you know, afford or just be given, you know, an opportunity to drive or, or whatnot. Um, but you know, obviously, if we if money wasn't an issue, uh, and you know, we wanted to buy something, you would get that. But you know, why would that be? So again must be a great video edit by evo but uh jethro bobbington mm -hmm. had a video come out when that car was launched of him ripping it through some countryside and he he just talks about how raucous the motor is and and how it just breathes and feels so much more alive than a regular 458 and and how I think they saved 100 kilograms of weight. So what is that, like 220 pounds? So they uh, off an already pretty light car. So they, they stripped some more weight out of it. They increased the um, speed of the downshifts, I think, by 50%, if I'm not mistaken. And you can hear it in the video. It sounds so crisp and so perfect. And I was hooked. And plus... It's a four and a half liter V8, okay? That's making 600 horsepower, naturally aspirated. I'm too lazy to do the math of how many horsepower per liter that is, but that's absolutely stratospheric. Uh, <laughs> it's it's nuts. Um, no, I'm I sure. Mean, if you think about cars with high specific outputs, right? So, like, for example, how many how, how many horsepower does your E34 have? 310. And it's a 3.8 liter or 3.6? 3.6 liters. So it's, it's it, you know, nudging on a one-to-one on a -one ratio, right? Yep. Um, and, and that's like a one-to-one -one ratio on a naturally aspirated engine is, is a, considered a very high specific output. So then you think about this, you know, going, you know, 1.8. 75 to one or 1.5 to one you know it's it's uh it's sort of unbelievable so i do get that it, it's it's a mastery of of engineering right absolutely absolutely and i i just like the way it looks i'm sure you could get some software tuning for your regular 458 so that the gearbox shifts as quickly i'm sure you could play around with the the engine itself to make it the same but to me like they've i know that they're they've got me hook line and sinker on that one and i don't care like <laughs> if, if money wasn't an issue i would not care you got me so yeah. I, I have to admit i also fall fall guilty to that like it might just be the look like i, I can think of so many cars over the years of like wow i have to have this special model just because of the way it looks 
maybe even more than anything, maybe the drive wouldn't be that much different, you know, but like, I don't know, sometimes that little facelift or this one other thing or another, it just makes such a difference. I think about my ZHP, my uh, 330i performance pack, special package they had on my E46. That in comparison to a regular 330 E46, maybe like to drive, there was, you know, 25% in it. But from a looks perspective, I mean, it was easily twice as good looking, the, the ZHP, you know, so it's it, it's interesting how, how much of an impact that type of thing has on you. Yeah, and, and I think acknowledging that, you know, part of it's a gimmick, but not caring and just liking it that much more. I think that's what makes it special. That's like part of the brand identity behind it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm with you. And, and look, you know, I'm all about like for cars. A lot of people nowadays talk about like, you know, how, how does your car, what image does your car give you? I don't think I ever thought about the image that my car gives me. I just like cars and that's like what I wanted. It's always been a decision based on what I wanted. Um, but, but at the same time, it's funny. So does, you know, wanting that extra little model because of the little bit of difference in looks mean that actually maybe, you know, we want to be seen in that. I don't know. You know, maybe we'll get a little deep down a rabbit hole here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say the average buyer of it probably does care about that. Yes. Yeah. But the bigger is better. You know, for me, it's like, I, I could give a shit because I'm still going to go up into the hills where no one's around anyway. So that's how I mentally justify this is for me. <laughs> Even whether or not that's true needs to be unpacked. But at, at the surface, that's how I justify it. And, and, and so, Mike, let's say if someone were to offer you this Aperta yeah. uh, to you. Uh, or um, if I may ask, like, what's a supercar pre- 95 that you're in there. Pre-95. Um, you know, when you say pre-95, I have to tell you the truth. Like, uh, that's it's a little tough for me. I don't think about supercars as much from that era. Like, the word supercar to me, it almost is more synonymous with these, you know, crazy cars we have today. And I think about, I could almost put those cars in a different category. Well, I mean, right. you know, supercars from back then, you're talking about like the high-end V12 Ferraris, mm-hmm. you're talking about Lamborghini. Right, it was uh, a different deal. Even, you know, think of, you know, the, the faster uh, Porsches even as kind of supercars of their era. You know, 959. Not, but, but maybe not. A 959 and a, and a F40, F40 supercars. Right. right, but can you consider the V12 uh, like the, the, the 512TR supercar? Maybe not. I, mean, I think you, it, I think you could. I mean, it, it's tough for us, you know, not having uh, lived in that generation to know how exciting or how super that car really was when it was first introduced. How uh, super it was. How, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, today, what what differentiates a supercar from a hypercar? You know. Yeah, I don't know. Like a hypercar has over a thousand horsepower, a supercar has under. Like, like I, I just made that up, by the way. Right. Or is the Aperta a hypercar and the regular 458 is just a supercar? I don't know. To me, you know how I think about it? I think what's your flagship model? Your untouchable halo car. And to me, that's that's the hypercar. 
and a lot in like with a lot of the modern cars and that that ignores the small volume manufacturers like Pagani and Koenigsegg that's pretty much all they make is hypercars but like with Ferrari it was the aptly named La Ferrari um Porsche I think you could argue the 918 was a hypercar and I also oh, think you 100%. could argue that the Carrera GT was a hypercar at the time before the hypercar existed exactly (laughs) to compete with the enzo which was also a hypercar at the time that car can hit 223 miles an hour in 2001 that's insane just a quick a quick aside uh carrera gt enzo you take cgt gt yep yep that makes three of us 100 (laughs) i would even think about it yeah I don't know. The Enzo just never did anything for me. It didn't for me when I was younger. It's doing more for me now, but it still doesn't top the CGT. Why do you think that's changed? Uh, I think because looking back on it, it was much more analog in terms of a supercar in terms of, in comparison to what supercars are today, right? So I look back on it with like a little bit of uh, fondness. Yeah, fondness. You know, this this crazy V12 Ferrari carbon chassis. I remember sitting in one in Pebble Beach and like just getting into it was an event, right? I'm sure the Carrera GT is just as much. I've sat in it, but I don't remember as well because I was younger. We sat in one more recently than that. We sat in a CGT? No, no. Are you talking about the CGT or an Enzo? Oh, yeah. We sat in the the Enzo at our graduation. (laughs) That's right. I forgot about that. The little kid came out and opened it for us. We were looking at his dad's Enzo. Right. So a little story. When Ryan and I graduated from college, we went out to uh, to dinner to celebrate with our families and uh, a nice Italian restaurant uh, in Providence. And, and we'll so the head of the Providence mob was there, obviously, with his Enzo. Pretty much, yeah. Was it Sienna's? Us and our friend Daruk, uh, like, I think he noticed that he stepped out and he saw, he came upstairs to our table and said, uh, guys, there's an Enzo parked outside. And we just immediately like, sorry, family. We got, we got. A, a, most of our family, um, at least my dad and brother, you know, understood um, that we had to excuse ourselves from the table. Um, and immediately we walked outside, and you know, we're kind of near the river in Providence, and it's a cobblestone street, and we're just walking up to it, and you know, in the red, classic Enzo, and we're just gushing over it. I think it was the first one I've ever seen in person. Uh, Live. It's, it's more stunning in person than it is in pictures Honestly, for sure it, it yeah. really is and for such a car that doesn't have that dramatic of lines to it, it it really does a lot with very minimalist uh i think design to it especially if you look at ferraris now and compare that to the enzo I they're think way over designed comparatively so right? overdone like the aperta looks stupid compared to the enzo i think it, it's too much um but, so wait, just a quick note on this. So you, you're also essentially saying what I'm saying about the Enzo being more classic. Uh, yes. But so okay, an anecdote. Ten years from now, how do what are our feelings on the Aperta? You know, <laughs> it's just interesting how it's very, very variable and it's changing as time goes. I mean, yeah, in ten years, these hypercars could be mostly electric driven and uh we could be saying wow you know i I mean especially we're gushing about a a naturally aspirated engine producing such high horsepower in 10 years you won't see anything like that it'll all be based on some hybrid system 
uh, and maybe the horsepower will be higher, but uh, we'll probably appreciate what was produced um, by such, you know, archaic technology or lack thereof. Yeah, I, th I think it'll age fairly well just because of that. No, it's a good point, it, but it's it's interesting, like how it doesn't it doesn't grab me today for that, and it doesn't sound like it's grabbing you either, Stephen. No, but, I, would uh, say no. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it does. You know, uh, a similar uh, thing I heard along these lines recently. Chris Harris was talking about how he used to love the 993. He thought it was the epitome of the 911. He, you know, he thought it was the best car, and he goes, you know, now the lines just look a little off to me. He said the 964 is the car to have now. He said, but ten years ten years ago I would have told you the opposite, you know. And it, but but your perspective in comparison to other things that are around changes your your viewpoint on the design. I've always liked the 96 more not more than the uh, 993. I I always thought that the 993 looked a little funky. Um, it, something about the front end, the way the head the headlamps are in, encompassed in the. Uh, the covers, I, I think they look a little funny, but the 964 to me is is what really does it. I mean, I, you know, I didn't think that before, but I think that now. I, I had the Chris Harris experience. What about you, Stephen? Um, geez, I you know I haven't thought about it much. I I do have a soft spot for the 993 in a way, um, especially the Targa. I don't know what it is about Targas that I like so much. The old panoramic roof. Uh, or I shouldn't say old because targets weren't originally that, but I'm definitely with you on that. By the way, any any year target I'm smitten with. I don't know why, because um, they're heavier and, and by all means make less sense in terms of a, of a Porsche. But um, um, but I do agree. I think the 964 has more striking lines to it, uh, and I think it's you know it turns heads a little bit more. Uh, than a 993. A 993 is very soft, very delicate looking. Um, very, I, I think, I see your point with the funkiness. Um, and it does have a very like bulbous kind of uh, shape in the rear and the front that coming from the 964 was, uh, it was like they melted the 964. It was like, they, it's like butter. They melted it and everything became smooth. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a so good way to put it. Yeah, um, you know I do like the 993, but I, I do think the 964 is, is definitely a little bit more interesting to to look at. And I hear even to drive, you know, like a, a 964 is really um, more of a driver's car than the 993 is. And what what 911s have you driven so far, uh, Mike, in your life? So the the first one I drove, like I said, was that uh, Carrera RS Tribute. The next one I drove was how about Carrera. how about that for a first experience in a 911? I, I, I was like, I gotta have this. I, like <laughs> you, you got spoiled with that one, Mike. Just saying. Yeah. It was really. 2,500 or 2,400 pounds. I can't remember what he said. And the motor was obviously worked. Um, mm -hmm. It's produced in 280. Um, and it, yeah, it just felt, it felt great. It felt alive and it had no power steering. It was, aw it was awesome. I loved it. The next I drove was a, another RSR tribute, but this one had a three, eight in it and it made, uh, 350 horsepower and it was awesome. 
this one was a little more scary just because the difference between 280 to 350, again, in a car that weighs less than 2,800 pounds is insane. Um, and I, but I, I enjoyed it. Think about that real quick. What cars are, do, have, have we driven, like what newer cars weigh less than 2,800 pounds, just to put that into perspective for everyone? I mean, like nothing. I think maybe, maybe Karen's Miata weighs about that. Yeah, not a lot in modern cars, uh, weighs a little. Yeah, agree. Um, and then the next one I drove after that was uh, a family friend has an 85 Targa. And I totally get the Targa thing after driving that. And Steven, I think you saw it at Caffeine and Carbs in yep. New Canaan a few years ago. That thing is sweet. It's a uh, 3.2, it's only got 230 horsepower and, what, 195 torque or something like that. Um, but it's fun. It moves. It's light. And, I, I yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that's the last time I left my drove. Okay, so the last Porsche you drove, Mike, was the, uh, the Targa? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, we got to get you into one uh, soon. <laughs> Amen. I know for a while you were trying to convince your, your old man to pick up a GT3, right? It's an ongoing discussion. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good that – you're fighting a good fight, Mike. Yep. And uh, if we didn't mention before, but you have gotten your fill of your dream E60 um, because your, your dad does own an E60 now, correct? Yeah, and he's nice enough to let me drive it. It's like, like, hey, mind if I take this out? And nine out of ten times, not a problem. Just make sure you come home. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's great. That car is everything I thought it would be and more. It astonishes me in ways that I, like, I can't believe it's a 14-year-old super sedan. But if you put that on summer tires and hustle it in M-mode on tight back roads, I'm not going to say it feels like uh, a full-on two-door sports car, but you'll hang with one, and you'll probably have just as much fun, especially you knowing you're you in a sedan. To, you have to battle with those a little bit in tight corners, though. You can, I mean, you, you feel, feel the weight. weight on that car. Oh, yeah. The weight. Oh, yeah. You, you learn to dance with it, and, and you kind of chuck it into a corner and have to anticipate where it's going to go and then catch it. Whereas the E34, it's like a little squirt gun, point and shoot, go go wherever you want. This thing is so different because it weighs 400 pounds more. And yeah, and what is it like 4,000 something pounds? Yep, just just over 4,000. Yeah, and and I will say, um, you know, I never knew a lot about the E60 uh, for a long time, and and it was never a special car in my mind even having seen reviews of it like i remember i don't know if it's the same one uh that you guys were referring to earlier um but the one with jeremy Clarkson compared it to the e63 at the time uh and he was at the airport and everything like and it was at night that's the one i think i remember most about the e60 and and um the e63 amg mercedes um, but I, I will say Mike and I had a, had a fortunate, uh, time to, uh, kind of re, uh, produce that type of review, 
um, generations later um, when I was able to take my dad's uh, E63 out. Um, it was a, he has a 2014 E63 AMG. Um, so obviously a couple generations different, but it really goes to show how much the E60 could still hold its own a few generations on um, to, to modern uh, German cars. Yeah, so uh, I didn't hear about this. What was the, how did, how did they feel one versus the other? Uh, I mean, you know, we were going through back roads and, and a bit on the highway, and uh, they're definitely different machines, given that, uh, you know, 2014 E63, you have four, you know, that's when they pull Hang on, hang on a second, out. guys. I have a, we have a big storm brewing, and I have to just close the door. I have some uh, doors slamming from the wind. <laughs> um, I'll wait for him, I guess, to come back if he wants to hear this story. That was a great day. I can't believe it was three and a half years ago, though. Is it that long ago? Yeah, it was November 2016, man. Wow. Time flies. It does. That's when the E60 was on summers, too. Right, right. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to drive not on summers. That's the only way I've known it for the past two and a half years. Jeez. Weren't you working on trying to get it back on summers? Yeah, I'll probably throw it on summers um, at the end of the season. I think I'm going to shoot through them. When was the last time you drove it? Uh, two weeks ago. Took it up to the Berkshires. Still feel good? Um, if it's a 10 out of 10 on summers... I would say it feels like a seven and a half on all seasons. Really? That's a really difference. Yeah. Because you can feel it want to let go way before you know it actually would on summers. And that's just a function of me having driven it a ton. Yeah, definitely like the confidence that the car goes down. You definitely don't enjoy it as much. But in a straight line, it's all good. Oh. Uh, I might take my time to zip it. Alright, do you have the bottle with you? I I do not. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. I had a the storm is so strong that furniture is flying on the ground level. So I just brought my outdoor furniture inside. <laughs> it's a crazy storm. I can see the lightning from my desk here. It's pretty neat, actually. Oh, wow. Um, but to jump back in, so, uh, yeah, we uh, did drive with the E60 and the E63 AMG. And, you know, in 2014, the E63 AMG uh, was kind of the first time they forced poor Matic, uh, at least here in the U.S. Um, so you have a 2080 split. Um, oh, wait, you I'll couldn't get a non-formatic? Not of that gen. That was the first gen that you couldn't get a non four wheel drive, at least in the US. I think in the UK, um, you can really? get people just I didn't know drive. that. Yeah. What's the gen? What gen is that called? Uh, I, I, I stopped giving, I gave up on <laughs> Mercedes Benz chassis numbers after like <laughs> R129. <laughs> yeah, right. What year is it? A 2014. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty positive on that that um, you can't you couldn't get it here in the U.S. Uh, without formatic, um, but it is 2080 split rather than uh, 4060 on the normal formatic system. So it's AMG's own formatic, um, and then obviously uh, turbocharged. Um, and the E60 is classic old school power. Um, you know, uh, more displacement, uh, you know, more cylinders, uh, and it really holds its own to the to the modern era of, of those German powerhouses, and it's really shocking over those years. I mean, maybe it's shocking, maybe it's not to some people who really know the car, but um, I was really impressed uh, by it, and, and Mike, uh, I, I hope it's okay if I say this, if your dad won't get too angry. Um, but you let me drive it for a little bit um, just through the tunnel so you can <laughs> listen to it from the outside and enjoy it. And uh, no regrets. I had, I had rides in the E60 and, and we did a, a jaunt up uh, Route 2 in Massachusetts, all of us together. Uh, and I have very fond memories uh, of that drive we all did together. And I think I had the Viggen, um, my Viggen for like the first time. I, I just had it for a little while. This was the uh, time that Mike was tapping out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mike tapped out very quickly when I. Now we know why. <laughs> um, um, but I remember just going up the roads of, of Route Two and and having a drive in it, or having a ride in it, and being in the back seat and you putting it in M mode and and the M modes go up to what six or seven. Right. Uh, six oh, right. speeds on the gear selector, but you have to have the uh, or transmission speed, but you have to have the uh, DSC off to get the sixth one. Okay. Uh, and uh, just the aggression of the shifts and the sensation of it, even just being a passenger, was was pretty invigorating. Well, um, and Mike Mike was highlighting because he was going like this, bam, smacking the paddles. <laughs> And I, I have a video of this. And I still have that on my phone. Videos. Hell yeah. <laughs> you, should, you, should send that, you should send that to both of us following this conversation. for. for I, I will. I have it saved um, so I can watch it every now and then. It always brings a smile to my face. Um, <laughs> I remember you literally smacking the paddle. Like, <laughs> I got such a kick out of that. Yeah. And Mike's just yelling and increasing the intensity of his, his <laughs> excitement for the car as we're accelerating. Um, it, it was just great. Um, classic Venditti. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very Venditti moment. Um, but just being a passenger and being in that car and, and feeling that and, you know, the, the gearbox on the Mercedes is, you know, pretty smooth. Even in, you know, Sport Plus, you don't get anything quite as aggressive as that. Um, and especially now with, you know, the paddles, uh, if you put it in manual mode. Um, but then I got to, when I got to drive the E60 and actually pull those paddles myself and, and it wasn't even in, uh, you know, M6 mode. It, you know, I, I think it was in a pretty standard mode uh, when you handed it over to me. Um, but just, Whoa, the, the f- just a quick interruption. I apologize. A lightning just hit the one of the power lines right down in front of me in like the big, big commercial plaza i saw a big fucking explosion <laughs> and the lights on all the buildings turned off <laughs> and now they just turned back on but wow that was something well we know if you go dark we'll know what happened <laughs> you'll know what happened 
Yep. Um, but when I got to drive the car and pull those paddles myself uh, and, and feel the engine through my fingertips, uh, it really was something else that you don't get from just being a, a butt in the seat of the back. Like, it really is something else, that car. It's intoxicating. Like, the induction noise is really seductive on that car, and it's just like more, more, more. It doesn't give a shit. You can be allegedly deep in the triple digits, and then it just it wants you to breathe on it more. You, you can be it'll 170 miles per hour, and it wants you to breathe on more. Yeah. So, allegedly, they have an electronic limiter on the U.S. cars at 170 miles an hour that I hit on a closed course. Um, and but at that 170 miles per hour, uh, the car was pulling hard. Like it, I, I, I said to my friends after I had an experience driving an E60 for a long time that I felt like the speedometer moved faster through the digits after 100 miles per hour. It it does. It it, it's, I, it's, it, it does. blows your mind. Yeah, it shines at higher speed. Exactly. It's all that car. It's all about the gearing. Because it makes peak horsepower at 77.50 and peak torque at like 66.50. So when you're really high in the triple digits, that's where it really shines. It's, yeah, it's like nothing else. It is like nothing else. I've never, ever been in a car that accelerates at over 100 miles an hour in that way. I mean, and I, I recently drove a, uh, oh, this is interesting. I recently drove a, v, a V12 Ferrari. At oh, yeah, 100, 160, 170 miles per hour on the Autobahn. And uh, yeah, now I'm trying to think. what Was that the 612? Factors. Yeah, I drove the manual 612. In, in, oh, it was a six-speed? Yeah, six-speed. I, wow. I specifically went, I wanted to buy it. I was trying to convince Stephen to go in on it with me. And then this <laughs> fucking COVID thing happened and no, no go. <laughs> yeah, but, that, was, uh, that was the holdback, COVID. Yeah, I'm I'm going to tell myself that's what the holdback was. Wow. But, you know, I, I suppose that's the only car I could compare in terms of, like, you know, power at that higher speed. I think that the 612 was a bit scarier. Uh, you hear that on my windows, by the way? No, I did not. The wind is so strong that it's coming in through the window seals. I hear that. Wow. Um I, I don't know that the 612 was the same experience for me as that M5. But, you know, I, I, again, like I said, I had a lot of seat time in the M5. 612, I was just I was just kidding. Holy <laughs> is shit. It safe for, is it safe for you to be by this window? Well, my apartment is all windows. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean. <laughs> wow. Anyway, uh, I lost my train of thought, boys. We'll have to delete this section. I don't it's, it's all good. Let's let's forget the E60 though. We it's it's a very polarizing car, but um, yeah, I think that there were a couple of things that um, Ryan wanted to discuss about uh, JDM cars on the topic well, so, of, of cars. I have one. I have one more thing for Mike on his M5s before we leave the subject. <laughs> Okay. So you, you spent significant time in, in three generations of M5, you know, uh, and, and subsequent generations, right? So interestingly enough, not like you skipped, you, you have, a, you have a, a row of them, you know, what's, 
what's your favorite and why and and you know how do you how can you compare them all you know you don't have to go too deep but but give us a high level because i think you have the spending all that time in those three cars is, is quite an interesting experience you know it's unique yeah here's how i know the e34 is my favorite because I had been hopping back and forth between the E39 and the E60 on long drives lately during this lockdown, some some isolated long drives, and I enjoyed it tremendously in both the E39 and the E60, but I, I took the E34 out last weekend for the first time in like three weeks, and I had that stupid smirk on my face the whole time because... There's just something about that car. Like when I was in college and I would come home on the weekends every once in a while and would plop down in that seat, I'd feel like I was home. I was at peace. Like that's my yep. little metal cocoon where I can work things out mentally and and just enjoy, you know, that man moment, moment machine. Yep. It, it's yep. like it's a culmination of all these things, right? Because I love cars and driving and, and the mechanical connection, but I also like exploring, right? It's this notion of freedom and limitless possibility. It's the open road of, of your own mind and, and the actual activity. And guess what? When you go on these drives, most of the time, I don't really have a destination in sight. If I find a good road, I just keep going with it. And like wherever the road takes me, the road takes me. And that whole time I'm enjoying the scenery and I'm in my car that means the most to me. So that's so last week when I came back from the Berkshires in my E34, that's how I knew it was like this this will never go. Like people talk about how things are always for sale, but like that car will never be for sale. I could be bankrupt. <laughs> Don't count that car as an asset cuz it's not going anywhere. Um, right. that that is the one for me. The E60 the, again, the S85 V10, stupid. It's so stupid. It's amazing. And and the gear shift, people hate on it. Okay, it's not great on the downshift because if you're below a certain RPM threshold, it won't rev match it as smoothly as if you downshift at a higher um, point. It's But anyway, look, it's an upshifting car anyway. It's all about more power. So exactly. It is irrelevant. Why would you want to slow down? Right. Yeah, no, that's fair, that's fair what that enough. car makes you feel like, in my opinion. Yeah, that car is like limitless possibilities with speed and what you can do with it and the way it conceals its mass. It's unbelievable. I, I can't say enough great things about that car. But it doesn't give me the same pure, raw driving pleasure. And it doesn't have that racy feel that the S38 in my E34 has that classic BMW inline six. That's where they made their name. It's Um, true. You know, it's true. BMW is an inline six company really. And and those motors will stand the test of time as being, you know, special and having, having quite a different characteristic to them. You know, something interesting on that topic. Did you know that BMW produced a V12 in production cars before they produced the V8? I did not know that. They actually were the ones who forced Mercedes to to make their first production V12. Interesting. The 7 Series came out, the 750. There was the 
the straight six, seven series, and then the 750 came out, and then uh, Mercedes had to, had to follow suit. But the point being was that they've always been a, a six-cylinder company, whether it was the six-cylinder or the V12, which was where two of their engines made it together, you know. And that's uh, all thanks to uh, Alex von Falkenhausen. What's that? <laughs> Alex von Falkenhausen. What do you mean? He was uh, a engine engineer. He was an engineer for BMW um, in like the 50s and 60s, and uh, I think through to the 90s. Um, and he had a huge impact on. I mean, he was the one who designed um, the 12-cylinder uh, BMW engines that made them so popular and, and successful in Formula uh, Formula racing. Um, I was just reading about him earlier today in a book. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's very nice to put like a name to these figures that had the big influence on the industry over our lifetime, right? Yeah. You know, like the guy. Uh, I don't have his name on the tip of my tongue, but the guy who saved the 9/11. You know, 9/11 was going to go, and the famous story is that they were having a boardroom meeting, and the guy gets up in the boardroom, and he, I think it's like Frank something. He takes his he takes his marker. And he draws a line around the whole room, and he says the 9/11 never ends. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, because they were planning the replacement, and it's you know what a character. But I mean, hey, that guy changed you know the direction of Porsche for the future. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a, a crack job thing to do at work, <laughs> but uh, bless that man for what he did all those years ago. Well, you know, Mike, the Germans are either 100% or, or nothing, right? I think so it's right. Like, uh, but uh, well, listen, boys, I would say this was a uh, this was a great chat. I, I enjoyed hearing about uh, you know Mike's Mike your 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 history with BMWs and what got you into cars and uh, getting a little bit of a taste of the comparison of the different generations is pretty neat. Um, you know, I, uh, I hope, uh, I hope we can all get together sometime soon and, uh, do a nice drive. I have planned in June, I'm going to be driving the S8. I, I just bought a 2001 S8. I'm going to be driving that across from Michigan to Rhode Island. So, uh, hopefully maybe around that time or sometime this summer, we can, uh, we can all get together for a drive. That'd be great. Amen for that. Well, uh, that's the Autoholic signing off. Thank you very, very much, everybody. Thanks for listening to Autoholics Anonymous by the Autoholic. Tune in to future episodes and follow our adventures at the-autoholic.com or on Instagram at the.autoholic and Twitter at theautoholic, straight through. Stay safe, but don't forget to drive fast and take chances. Cheers. Introduction music by Stephen Diamond.